What's up, guys? This is Mike. This is Dave, and you're listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. What's up, guys? This is Mike, and welcome to episode 28 of the Mike and Dave Podcast. And I'm just going to put this out here, man. When this episode releases, it'll be May 6th. Our first episode aired May 10th, 2021. It's been a year, and not only that, our first episode was reviewing the 2021 NFL Draft, and this episode is recapping the 2022 Draft. We've come full circle, a year in both like subject matter and calendar dates. It's crazy. Yeah, it definitely is crazy to think about. A year ago was when we were covering the 2021 Draft, and now here we are in 2022, and you know, 28 episodes later, here we are. It's a pretty cool experience and, um, you know, not to get too sentimental, but it's been a really fun year of dipping our toes in the podcasting waters. And, uh, you know, we, we really enjoyed putting this uh, podcast out there every two weeks, uh, occasionally throwing in an extra episode here and there because we're just, uh, charitable in that way. But, uh, but yeah, we definitely have have appreciated um, everyone who's listened, and uh, yeah, we're excited to get this one rolling and um, do some NFL draft superlatives. But before that, it's time to do off the top and kind of segueing from our re you know reviewing of the past year. The off the top prompt for today is I'm going to ask Mike off the top of your head without looking back through Spotify or whatever. What is your favorite episode that we've done of the Mike and Dave podcast? And what is your favorite segment? Well, what, the episode that always comes to my mind is always our preseason NFL tier list. Now, we've already been through and reviewed like how well we did. So it's not necessarily my favorite because we nailed every single like, ranking. But on the one hand, I feel like you know, listening back, it, it comes across that we like know what we're talking about, you know, about all and, and about all 32 teams as opposed to like cherry picking like three teams here or there that like, OK, yeah, we like follow the Falcons. We you like the Vikings. I like the Lions, you know, stuff like that, like hitting on all 32. But I also feel like there are plenty of laughs in there. Like, I feel like that one is just like a, a quintessential mix of like funny and informative, I guess. Um so that's probably the one that stands out to me in that way. Now, that was like episode nine or so. It was episode nine. Good memory. Hey, thank you. Now, I will say, I think that we've improved since episode nine. But as a whole, like that was over an hour of talking about all 32 teams. So I guess that's like one segment that like stands out in my mind. As a whole, I think we've improved, and so I think episode 24, 25, those are probably better, but that's the episode that sticks in my head. Now, which segment? I assume you mean like that we regularly do, not like a specific time that we talked about something? It could be both. Okay, then I have an answer for both of those. Um, my favorite segment that we do regularly... Get ready for the narcissism, dog. It's it's that's disrespectful <laughs> because I'm like classic. Oh, 
this dude is irritating and i just want to like bitch and moan about how this person irritates me or whatever let me just go off for a second although the hot seat will always have a soft spot in my heart since it takes us back to the radio show days where we used to do that every week so i'm, I'm gonna change my answer i'm gonna say that i enjoy doing that's disrespectful but but the hot seat is special to me now favorite like individual like thing that's come up in a segment <laughs> okay it's when you did the fun fact about um the incest blocker <laughs> i don't remember what episode that was in but that's definitely my favorite fun fact and i don't i don't recall laughing as much at any of your fun facts like quite like that one can you go ahead and explain to any listeners who didn't listen to that one what that is talking about just so they're not like what the heck is that as much as i'd love to leave that wildly out of context basically in iceland these guys developed this app and I listen back at the in the into the original episode to hear a better telling of this but these guys developed an app like a dating app with this like built-in function that you can like scan with the other person's phone or whatever. Like I guess they have the QR code and all, all that. And it tells you if at any like history or at any point in history in your like ancestry, if the two of you are related. So it's like their slogan was something like bump phones before you bump in bed or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's just like, Oh, you know, there are only so many people in, in Iceland for you to date. May as well, like, make sure you're not dating people that you could have awkward run-ins at family reunions with, which is, like, I don't know, like, uh, new problems require innovative solutions, and these guys went after it. Absolutely, yeah, that that was a memorable fun fact. I, yeah, that, that one was, your reaction was pretty funny to that one, for sure. All right. I definitely like those options. Um, it's kind of not fair because when I thought of this prompt, it got me thinking, hmm, which ones were my favorite? So I actually did have to do or not have to do. I was able to actually do a little bit of scrolling on Spotify and go through and try to remember, you know, what was my favorite episode, et cetera, et cetera. So my favorite episode has to have been episode 15 which was our 2021 mid-season NFL tier list so this is where we rank we re-ranked all 32 NFL teams into a different an updated tier list which ended up being a lot better than our preseason one but the main reason is because we started off the show by celebrating and reminiscing on the Atlanta Braves World Series championship and I got to revel and, you know, just kind of celebrate that momentous occasion uh, on the podcast. So I think that's got to be my my favorite, um, as well as kind of we still did the tier list, which has become a staple of this podcast. Um, and I can't remember exactly, but we had so many people on the hot seat that episode. I think it was like there were like four or five different people on the hot seat. <laughs> so overall, that was just a pretty solid one. Um, as far as my favorite recurring segment goes, it's got to be top five for me. 
um, just because I think that's a really fun way to like for it to be sports related, but not necessarily talking about, you know, current events. Um, Cause it, it we, you know, we've done, uh, you know, favorite uniforms uh, slash jerseys, favorite sports video games, um, you know, our favorite NBA players, not necessarily the best, but our favorite ones. Um, so I, I just kind of enjoy the variety and, and how we can kind of, kind of get creative with that one though. Special shout out to off the top this segment uh, because I think it's just kind of a fun way to kick off the, the show. And, you know, we only started doing it in episode 16 actually is when we started doing off the top. So this is the 12th episode we've started, we've been doing it and it's just kind of been a fun thing to add into the mix to just kind of kick off the show. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. As far as my favorite like moment during a segment, there are a few that, that definitely stand out to me, but I think I'm going to have to go with, well, okay. Honorable mention to when I was, I asked you for my fun fact, if you knew which fruits were in, were, were, were native to, uh, to North America. Which by the way, y'all, we never did this update, but I eat fruit. Like, (laughs) I don't know how many of y'all have gone to social and seen pictures of us. I eat okay. I eat okay. Like not the best, but I do all right. Yeah. So I have strawberries in the fridge right now. Yeah. So I I will say it kind of ended up with me roasting Mike's diet, which at the time was funny, but I realized it may have come across a little bit harsh. And to be fair, since that time, Mike has admittedly like he's admitted to me that he now eats more fruit. So I'm going to just take that as a win um, for not just me, but for Mike and his long-term health. But uh, no, but I'm just kidding. But yeah, so that was definitely an honorable mention for me. But I think my favorite moment has to have been during a That's Disrespectful, where Mike started ranting about how terrible Michigan football and basketball have been uh, for an extended period of time. It was pretty unscripted um and it, it was just very amusing to listen to um also the one you did about blake griffin was really funny but then we found out that like maybe it wasn't 100 percent accurate <laughs> but at the time i like got a really good laugh um when i was listening back to it and during it so um those are definitely a few good options but yeah but it you know it's been really fun and i'm sure there'll be a lot of more um solid segments you know maybe some new segments um and and more moments to come in in this next year so we're looking forward to continuing to put out episodes every couple of weeks for y'all and yeah we're gonna keep having fun doing it and i do want to add actually since i've had a few more minutes to think on this i want to add an alternate answer so if you'll ask me one more time to set it up about what my about my favorite episode What's your favorite episode? The next one. Yeah, we're going to bring some Tom Brady into this. You know how he always says his favorite ring is the next one because it's about the process of like chasing after it and like having something to work towards. I'm going to say like the next episode is my favorite in in a way because, you know, it is fun doing this. And so like I do look forward to like on a biweekly basis sitting down with Dave and recording these episodes and like 
doing the doing the work to like prepare for them it it is truly a joy so like it is great and fun to look back but i also enjoy like looking forward and like going on and thinking about the next episode as well so that's its own fun so that's going to wrap up off the top when we come back we are going to break down the nfl draft and give out some superlatives so stick around all right and we're back and it's time to dish out some superlatives for the nfl draft we've got some team focused superlatives we've got some player focused superlatives we're going to start with the teams and then make our way over to the individuals and i feel like this first superlative is like the most burning question after the draft like year in year out so dave who do you think had the best draft class in this year or in this year's draft all right, I think it, this came down to two teams, and it wasn't particularly close after them. Um, I And one other note, Mike and I do not know the other's picks for these superlatives, so this is just, you know, he'll be hearing my pick, as y'all do as well. Um, it's it, I mean, for me, it's between the Ravens and the Jets. Um, I think the the Jets did a really awesome job of um, you know, they got the best corner, arguably the best receiver, um, by far the best defensive end that was left on the board and the best running back all in their, all in the same class within the first two rounds. Um, of course that's Ahmad Gardner out of Cincinnati at corner, Garrett Wilson, Ohio state receiver, Jermaine Johnson out of Florida state my guy, defensive end, and Brees Hall, running back out of Iowa State. Those top four guys, I think, they could not really have done better with those selections, um, especially considering you know they needed help defensively. Um, they got it with a pass rusher in the corner, arguably the two most important positions on defense. So I think it's got to be the Jets. And, that's, and I'm sure you'll talk about the Ravens a lot, and I really think it's pretty much a tie. I'm just going to give the slight edge to the Jets because they need more help than the Ravens do. It means a lot more to the Jets' success to nail these picks than it does for the Ravens because they're already going to be pretty good. Um, And the Ravens did trade away Marquise Brown, which I thought was kind of weird um, as part of their draft process. So I think that dings them a little bit. But overall, I think they both did well. But I'm going to go with the, the slightest of edges to the Jets for best draft class. So I agree that the Jets had the best draft class. And the reason that I put them over the Ravens, though I'll talk more about the Ravens, isn't that the Ravens traded away Marquise Brown. It's that they didn't then replace him with a receiver. Like, just running down this this list, safety center, linebacker, nose tackle. Offensive line, corner, tight end, punter, tight end, corner, running back. You just trade away your best receiver. And in the past few years, one of our main concerns with the Ravens' offense is a lack of playmaking from that receiver position. Not that that's necessarily what plagued them this past season because of Marquise Brown (laughs) eclipsing the 1,000-yard mark, but that's usually one of our bigger concerns. Like You have this electric quarterback, but you don't really have as much in in the way of like receivers that are supporting him by getting open. That aside, the Ravens just always seem to like have these players just fall in their laps. They don't really have to trade up necessarily for these guys. But at 14, they get Kyle Hamilton. 
great safety uh, out of Notre Dame. Then at 25, Tyler Linderbaum uh, lands in their laps. One of the best center prospects that we've seen in years. He could be like that staple center for their offensive line to like in front of Lamar Jackson for a decade or so, maybe more. Who knows? David Ajabo. Um, like we we talked before about how he was going to fall on draft day because of that injury, but once he comes back from injury, he'll be a steal because he's a first round talent. You know, assuming he recovers well enough, and like talk about great fits. Ajabo just goes from one Harbaugh to the to the other. Uh, Travis Jones at nose tackle, uh, like midway through the third round. Then you bulk up your offensive line with Daniel Falele. Um, you get two big body tight ends to pair with Mark Andrews. So, I mean, they're going to run plenty of those like multi tight end sets, but these are like mobile, but blocking tight ends. These like, they fit that scheme as well. Even like looking at their sixth round pick, Tyler Beatty out of Missouri running back. That that dude is a good running back in the sixth round. Like every single pick, I feel like they hit on. I I'm not looking at a single pick like negatively, other than like none of them being a receiver. I I think the Ravens just like pick for pick crushed this. Now, going all the way to the other end of the spectrum, Mike, who did you have as the worst draft class this year? So I'm addressing this in terms of who I felt just didn't succeed that well with the picks they had as opposed to, like, you know, quantity. On our last episode, I spoke fairly highly of Kyler Gordon, and I still feel that that was a good pick. But is it just me, or did the, did the Bears seem just disinterested in surrounding Justin Fields with immediate talent? <laughs> like, I'm looking at this... Uh, I'm looking at their selections. Kyler Gordon. Love it. Good pick. Whatever corner out of Washington they need a corner cool they use their other second rounder on a safety out of Penn State who isn't bad but again he's not on offense and it's not just about offense being sexy it's you have a second year guy it's going to be your franchise quarterback you haven't had anything exciting happen in Chicago in god knows how long then you follow that up with Velas Jones who is a receiver out of Tennessee and he's fast uh, he's not exactly known for his production, but he he runs quickly. Okay, so then offensive lineman, cool, I support that. Linebacker, uh, guard, a running back that they could have done better with. Another, like two more guards, a safety and a punter. Where are the weapons? Mark my words, in a year from now, on episode 56-ish, you know, whenever we recap or maybe when we preview the 2023 draft we're going to talk about the chicago bears needing to give justin Fields some weapons because they didn't do it this year they've got darnell mooney who's a perfectly fine receiver uh cole Komet is fine at tight end uh, david montgomery is good at running back but i mean they need more weapons to pass to justin fields is out there running for his life not just because the offensive line isn't great but also because Nobody can get open in that, in that offense. So it just kind of doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, they, they released Nick Foles. It's, it's Justin Fields' job, and they don't give him really much support except for one third-round receiver who's probably not going to make the biggest impact uh, on, on that offense. So 
I agree. The Bears had a pretty disappointing class. The most obvious pick for worst draft class is the Patriots. Um, you know, Bill Belichick, I think, well, I don't, I don't think I know on this podcast, we have sung his praises many times, but we've also said that as good of a head coach as he is, his general managing skills are a little bit questionable. And I think it's got to be said that this year it's no different. You know, they, they trade Shaq Mason away. Not only to use their first round pick on Cole Strange, who is a perfectly fine player um, from a small school from Chattanooga um, to, to fill up, to fill that space. Shaq Mason is a perfectly fine guard and you just trade him away and you use your first rounder as a reach, by the way, there were other players who were better or they could have traded down and gotten more picks. And so they just went ahead and took their guy, which I, at some level, I can respect that, but this just seemed very high for him as a, as a guy who was projected maybe low second round, maybe third round. Then you keep going. Tyquan Thornton out of Baylor. Um, he's a receiver with their second round pick. There were other receivers who were much better. Yes, he ran a 4-2-8-40 at the combine. He's blazing fast. I'm sure that the Patriots will find a way to use him. But there were better receivers available on the board. It just didn't really make that much sense to, to pick up that guy in particular. Now, there were a couple of guys that I did like that they picked up. Marcus Jones um, out of Houston at corner, their third round pick. Uh, he could potentially uh, feature in some nickel situations right away and be their returner. And then um, also Pierre Strong Jr. running back out of South Dakota State in the fourth round. I think uh, he has potential to be you know, featuring that running back rotation that they have right away. But overall, I just think that they didn't do a great job um, at recognizing value. And they just kind of went ahead and, and reached on, on a few players. Not only that, but in, a, in the fourth round, Bailey Zapp, a quarterback out of Western Kentucky, after Mac Jones just had undeniably the best rookie season out of any of that draft class of quarterbacks, why are you using a fourth rounder on him when, you know, the defense needs work? You need more weapons for Mac Jones in the first place. It just kind of doesn't make sense to use that draft capital on another young quarterback when Mac Jones already showed that he can be the next guy, um, at least based off of his rookie season. Let's stay on the low end of the spectrum for a second. We just did the worst draft class. Now let's look at just who improved the least? Dave, who do you think improved the least in this draft? I'm going to go ahead and say that this is as a result of trades that they made, one for Devontae Adams, one for Tyreek Hill, and that's one of the reasons why they didn't have much draft capital. So if you want to say that their draft class, quote, included Devontae Adams or included Tyreek Hill, then I can understand that, but I'm approaching it from... In the actual draft, how much help did they get? Obviously, those two teams are the Raiders and the Dolphins. And I'm going to have to go with the Dolphins. I mean, they only picked four times in the entire draft, and two of those were seventh-round picks. Um, their third-round pick was Channing Tindall out of Georgia, uh, who's a linebacker who uh, has a lot of physical traits, uh, who pops on tape. Did, never actually started 
a game at Georgia because he was behind Nicobe Dean and Quay Walker on the death chart, but showed enough to where he could be a, an interesting linebacker for them. So like they got that guy as far as everyone else. I mean, they drafted a receiver out of Texas tech, Eric Ezukanma. I'm going to say it. That's how you pronounce it. Um, he's not going to be a difference maker right away. You know, in the two seventh round picks, I don't even know if they'll make the roster. So really, it was sure they got Tyreek Hill in that trade. Otherwise, they got a linebacker, a receiver who's probably going to be on the practice squad, and two seventh rounders who may not make the team. It's just that they just didn't really improve at all uh, from from this draft class. So I've got to give that to the Dolphins. But the Raiders kind of in a similar situation. But I think they they had a, you know a few more picks and were able to address a couple more needs. But I think it's it's those two for me, but I'm going to give it to the Dolphins. At the beginning of the segment, you said that, you know, we didn't communicate about our superlatives before getting on to record. And that's true. But I think this is just showing how, like, we just think similarly because I was also looking at those two teams. So let me just talk about the Raiders for just a second. I mean, you get Dylan Parham, guard out of Memphis. I Good. Their first pick was towards the end of the third round. And again, it's because of the trades we made. They made, they got Devontae Adams. And, you know, we're assessing the draft itself. That leaves Matthew Butler, defensive tackle out of Tennessee in the fifth round. Sure, like, that could work. That comes just about 50 picks after a different defensive tackle from the SEC, Neil Farrell from LSU, who's better, which inherently seems to lower Matthew Butler's chance of succeeding. You know, you pick the same position twice in a row. But then when we get to that that other fourth-round pick, Zamir White, running back out of UGA, if you didn't believe it already, here's another signal. Josh Jacobs is not in the Raiders' long-term plan, which Josh Jacobs is a good running back. That I like. If I were a fan of the Raiders, which I'm not, I would want him to be in the long-term plan. So this sort of like turn signal of hey, we're gonna ditch him for Zamir White would just that's just not doing it for me. So all in all, like yeah, the Dolphins improved least because realistically they're adding two players none of whom are like major i mean best of luck to you channing tindall but like the raiders up there in this that same boat for sure and also the raiders i mean they signed Kenyon drake to that dumb contract so they they still have him there too now they're adding zamir white to the mix i mean i guess they're drafting for the future but i mean you already have you're already number one paying a running back way too much money to be your backup. And number two, you're not going to actually pay your starting running back, Josh Jacobs. It seems like, cause you're not going to pick up your, or his fifth year option. So it just kind of seems like, sure, maybe they're, they're drafting to replace them. But at the same time, it just kind of seems like a poor allocation of resources from, from that front office. And number three, if you make the trade for Devontae Adams and you've expressed your belief in Derek Carr at quarterback, doesn't that feel like a team that should be trying harder to compete now than thinking about the future? Whatever. For sure. So we're going to move on to our next superlative. 
which is going to be the best drafter for need uh, specifically. So I think we're going to try to make, obviously we've said the best draft classes were the Ravens and the Jets. We're going to try to go ahead and choose a different team um, for best drafter for need and um, for the next uh, superlative as well, just as a clarifier. So Mike, who do you have as the best drafter for need uh, for this year? Detroit. <laughs> for just, They suck. I, I don't know what, what else to tell you. They suck and they've sucked for a long time and they probably will continue to do so. When I look at their number two pick of Aiden Hutchinson, you know, they got probably the best player in this draft. That's what you and I were saying together on the last episode. And that's not exactly a, um, an un, that's not exactly an unpopular opinion. Aiden Hutchinson is widely regarded to be the best player in this draft. And when you get him anywhere below one, that qualifies as a steal to me. But then you look down, you get number 12, Jamison Williams, speedster out of Alabama. And this is something that the Lions desperately need, an exciting playmaker. But just to circle back to Aiden Hutchinson, they also desperately need an elite edge rusher. And let's talk about culture. That's what Dan Campbell is trying to address. That's what that city needs is like players that want to be there. Um, and players that are going to like have dynamic impacts on the team, both on and off the field. And if you think the Michigan man himself, Aiden Hutchinson, who grew up cheering for the Lions, doesn't want to be there and won't influence that culture, I can't think of any team with a better like individual player fitting for that team than the Lions with Aiden Hutchinson. Josh Pascal in the second round um, out of Kentucky, another great piece that you can very quickly add to that defensive line. And then like even in the third round, Kirby Joseph, the safety out of Illinois, that's not a bad pickup in the third round. Uh, you get James Mitchell tight end out of Virginia tech in the fifth. Um, I mean, they already have one of the best tight ends in football and TJ Hawkinson, but this is a great guy to put behind him. Like none of these are going to suddenly turn the lions into playoff contenders this year. So calm down, but those top four or five guys, but especially their first three, they nailed it every single time. Love those picks. I think that gives Detroit something to be super excited about. Yeah. I think the lions had a very good draft. Uh, You know, they got lucky that the Jags took Trayvon Walker instead of Hutchinson, you know, fell right into their laps. And it was kind of funny how quickly their pick was submitted uh, after the Jags picked up Walker. It was like, all right, well, we don't have to discuss this at all. Like we know exactly who we want. And like you said, Hutchinson wants to be there, which is huge for a team like the lions who are known for like their mistreatment of Calvin Johnson and like Stafford toiling away and then leaving and then immediately winning a super bowl. So they need foundational pieces that want to be there and uh, change that culture. And I think the lions did a good job of that uh, last year with arguably the league's worst roster and being competitive in a lot of games, even though they didn't win too many of them, um, which is why they're picking second. <laughs> but um, I didn't go with the lions as one of my top two um, just because I thought Jamison Williams, um, you know, they, they had to give up a decent amount to uh, trade up to get him. So I think maybe Jamison Williams could potentially be, um, you know, a need, but like, 
I, I think that because they have so many needs that maybe they could have just held on to those additional picks that they had. But that does not take away in how good I thought their draft class was. Um, the two teams that I was kind of going between for um, best drafter for needs were the Steelers and the Bills. And um, the Bills, of course, um, picked up a corner to, to start opposite Trey White. Uh, they picked up James Cook um, to be a uh, backup running back, a pass catching, pass protecting option for them, which I think helped. You know, they shorted up their punting, uh, their punter situation with Matt Ariza, who is arguably the best punter in the draft and could immediately be one of the top special teams guys in the league. So I think that Buffalo really did a good job of um, filling their needs. But all that being said, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the Steelers. I think the Steelers needed a quarterback. And yes, they drafted a quarterback like two rounds ahead of any other one that went. But that just meant that they got to pick who they thought was their guy. And talking about culture, top, talking about guys who want to be there, Kenny Pickett went to Pitt and by all accounts want, wanted to be a Steeler and he got his wish. So the Steelers get their quarterback of the future as Big Ben retired. I don't think anyone really believes that Mitch Trubisky is going to be the long-term answer there, even though he signed that contract, or Mason Rudolph for that matter. Then Juju Smith-Schuster and James Washington, they leave in free agency. So what do the Steelers do? They draft George Pickens in the second round, receiver out of Georgia, and then Calvin Austin the third, receiver out of Memphis in the fourth round. These are two guys who can start right away. Um, Pickens can start out wide, Austin in the slot. I think both of them are can be productive players. Um, Pickens is a little bit more potential than production right now, but I think he could thrive um, in Pittsburgh. And they just went ahead and f- f- like filled those needs, gave Kenny Pickett some weapons, which I really like. Then DeMarvin Leal in the third round, defensive end out of Texas A&M, he's a guy who was potentially touted as a first-round prospect before the season, was kind of inconsistent this year, but put him on the Steelers with that defensive line, with Cam Hayward, um, with Tuit, with Stephon Tuit, all those, and TJ Watt. I mean, this is a guy who's going to be able to learn from the best, and they're going to be able to probably get, like, maximize all of his talent that he has. So I, I loved that pick. I just thought they did a really good job of um, of fill, filling those obvious holes that they had. And they didn't have too many picks um, in this draft, but they managed to to use them really well. And, you know, general manager Kevin Colbert, he's this is going to be his final draft as he's going to be stepping away. Um, and I think that he did a really nice job putting the Steelers in a good position for uh, future success. So the Steelers are going to win out for uh, best drafter for need. I also had the Steelers on my list. Couldn't agree more with anything with everything you said. Um, Steelers, like the Ravens, tend to do really well with the uh, with the process of putting together a good roster. Just like we talked about success as an off the top a few episodes ago, and when it comes to organizational success, these are two of the best in the league, just year in year out. Now that addresses teams drafting based on need the other end of the drafting spectrum is drafting based on value um who's like good for where you get them etc so i just have one team that i want to throw out here for this one 
and then I'll kick it to you. I mean, aside from like, we talked about the Ravens and Jets already. So let me talk about the Titans. So the Titans start their evening by trading away A.J. Brown uh, to the Eagles, who, by the way, we haven't mentioned yet, but just in case we don't later, Eagles fans should be happy. Like, that, if, if I were in Philly, I would have been having a good night. But looking at the Titans, so they trade away A.J. Brown, but then in the first round they were... Um, they get a receiver, which we were just talking about the Ravens not doing. They get they draft Traylon Burks out of Arkansas, who we talked about on episode 27. Then they address their secondary with Roger McCreary, corner out of Auburn. They bulk up that offensive line um, with Nicholas Petit-Frere out of um, Ohio State. Now here's where it gets valuable. They were the ones that pulled the trigger. We were watching this man fall for literal days because like, he was there day one and wasn't selected, but they pulled the trigger. 86th overall pick, Malik Willis, who you know, we talked about as having like potentially the highest upside of any quarterback in this draft. Now, also right, the lowest downside, right? Like This is your like quintessential high-risk, high-reward type of player. But they didn't have to spend a high draft pick on that, which absolutely defends the pick. Yeah, the Titans win for value on this draft. Okay, I like that um, that pick of the Titans for sure. Um, obviously, Malik Willis, that's a boomer bust thing, but it could end up being for sure the best value in the entire draft, uh, bar none. It was pretty interesting to see how uh, the quarterbacks fell um, other than Kenny Pickett. After Kenny Pickett, it was just, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And finally, who gets picked up but Desmond Ritter for the Falcons, who that's who I'm going to choose as the best drafting for value in this in this year's draft. Um, I will also give an honorable mention to the Eagles. The Eagles were my other pick. I mean, you get Jordan Davis at 13, a replacement for Jason Kelsey in the second round with Cameron Jurgens, Nicobe Dean, a linebacker can probably start for the next 10 years for your defense in the third round. Um, and then of course they also managed to acquire AJ Brown in the same draft. I mean, that's value right there, but I wanted to give a shout out to the Falcons because um, as Mike and I were watching the draft and watching everything unfold, I can't say that like the, that the player that the Falcons picked each time was who Mike and I wanted but they also did not necessarily pick guys who I disagreed with. And the more that I've kind of been looking over this, this draft class, the more that I like it. And the more that I think they did a really good job of, of addressing, not only addressing the needs, but really, uh, you know, drafting for value, um, which is obviously what the superlative is. I think Drake London like at number eight, they had to get a receiver, um, whether it was first round or second round. And Drake London at number eight, I wouldn't say is the most valuable pick of the of the class, but I will say that it definitely was an important thing and they got their pick of the receivers. And I think he is in a position to succeed uh, for, for the Falcons this year um, and then in years to come for sure. And then you move on to the second round. I thought they did really well with, with these picks on um, Arnold Ebikati, um defensive end out of Penn State. The 
the Falcons need pass rush. They needed pass rush and they needed receivers. Um, and they got a guy in Epicady who is uh, arguably a first round talent um, in the second round. And he's a guy who can, you know, go and rush the passer along with their third, um, their third round selection, D'Angelo Malone out of Western Kentucky. Um, these two guys are going to boost the pass rush immediately. And I think that they are a bit more of a, like, I think they could have both gone a lot higher than they did. And the fact that we were able to draft both and definitively improve our defensive line was a really solid um, play by Terry Fontenot. Now, their other second rounder was Troy Anderson, a linebacker out of Montana State. I think this guy has all the potential in the world to be, uh, you know, to be a pro bowler. Um, he just has to kind of refine a lot of his technique, but he has all the athleticism you could ever want out of a linebacker. Um, he's fluid. He he plays hard. Um, he he runs extremely fast. He had the best 40 out of any linebacker at the combine. Um, he's a former quarterback, um, like former running back. I mean, he's a guy who is a freak athlete. And I think with the right coaching, he could end up being a star um, in, on the Falcons defense and, re- and kind of replace that um, production that Aluakon left behind when he signed with the Jags. And then I haven't even mentioned yet, well, I mentioned at the beginning, but Desmond Ritter in the third round out of Cincinnati, I think this is the perfect place to take a swing on a quarterback. A third rounder, if you d- if he doesn't work out, then it's not the end of the world. Uh, they didn't freak out. They didn't go ahead and and trade up and, and draft a quarterback in the first round or early second round. They just kind of, you know, stuck to their board. And when they were picking in the third round and Desmond Ritter was available, they just said, you know what, let's go ahead and take him and see what he's got. Uh, obviously, Mariota is there. He's going to give an opportunity. Uh, he's going to get an opportunity to start. But apparently, so is Desmond Ritter. And I think... As far as value goes, this is tremendous value for a guy who has a really high ceiling, I think. So I think overall, Atlanta did really have a, a solid draft class and got guys um, either at their value or like at a good, you know, a better value than you would think. And I'm excited to see what these guys can do. I don't think this is going to necessarily turn around the Falcons' fortunes, but I am excited about the potential and uh, these new building blocks for the Falcons. I'll admit that when we were watching the draft, pretty much every pick I wasn't like stoked about, but I was also like, you know what? That could have gone worse. And and I'm with you. The more the more we look into it, the better it, it like ends up looking. And I do like Desmond Ritter. Um as you know, my hope is that he won't start week 1 just so he has some time, you know, uh not having to get thrown in right away. He has come out and said that he doesn't want to leave Atlanta until he delivers a Super Bowl. So you already know we got Desmond Ritter for life. But in a city like Atlanta, it's nice to hear. I appreciate the sentiment, and I I hope that like reigns true that like we do win a Super Bowl. Uh, you know, just don't anticipate that happening in the next couple of years. But you know, maybe Ritter can be the guy. Why not? It's not like every quarterback in the NFL that succeeds in the NFL was a first round draft pick. In fact, often it's the opposite. So, you know, why not? Like, like you said, third round is a great place for that. 
All right, so that wraps up the team superlative section of the segment. And now we're going to go into some player superlatives from the 2022 NFL draft. And first up is most likely to succeed. Mike, who do you got? So I'm going to give you two just because I'm looking at quarterbacks. I'm looking at non-quarterbacks. So I want to give you one of each. The quarterback one is quick because I've basically already talked about it. Malik Willis. Um, and I'm basing that on his situation. I think that that's worth a shout based on the reasons I've already addressed. He has time to grow and mature in that system. Um, learn from a good coach. Uh, be behind, like, Ryan Tannehill is fine. Like, that's a fine guy to learn learn behind. Enter into a low-pressure situation uh, where he won't be asked to throw 50 times right away. Uh, hopefully. My goodness. Um so if I'm Malik Willis, like I'm bummed about the money I lost by falling to the fourth round, but I think that like team fit yields well for him. But as far as non quarterbacks, I'm going to say this about me and Dave. We have a knack, I think for knowing when running backs are going to translate to the NFL. Like, if you look back in the last few drafts, we wanted Javante Williams. Look what happened. We were high on Jonathan Taylor. Look what happened. We said Christian McCaffrey uh, would translate to the NFL. Look what happened. You were high on Dalvin Cook coming out of college. Look what happened. Um, I was huge on Derrick Henry. Look what happened. He's like the best running back in football. Like We call running backs, and I'm calling Kenneth Walker. Dude's going to be a beast. Um, on talent alone, I have him as like super likely to succeed now put him in Seattle um, where they've they're moving on from Russell Wilson. They're going to be trying to find their identity and what better place to start than the run game. I mean, they drafted him with the 41st pick. So, you know, you use your second round pick on a running back that signals. This is a player that we want to integrate quick, fast and in a hurry and just watch Kenneth Walker's tapes from Michigan state. Dude is electric. He, I mean, he torched Michigan, but um, who doesn't? Uh, but Kenneth Walker has all the all the tools necessary to be an elite NFL running back on a team that will want to use him as such. So he's my uh, most likely to succeed outside of like the quarterback position. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially with the Malik Willis pick. I think he definitely has is very likely to succeed with the Titans. Now, the guys that I have most likely to succeed offensive line doesn't always get the glamour and the glory, especially non-left tackles. But the two guys that I'm looking at, both neither of them are a left tackle, but I think that both of them are very likely to succeed. First one, Tyler Linderbaum uh, on the Ravens. I think he's a plug-and-play center for them. They lost Bradley Bozeman in free agency. They just plug Linderbaum right in. I think he fits their scheme. Um, he dominates more in the run game than in the pass game. That's what the Ravens do. I think he's probably going to be the, their center for the next 10 years. Done, dusted, perfect first-round selection. And then also Evan Neal. Even though he's going to be on the Giants, I just think his talent is undeniable, uh, especially at right tackle. Um, you know, At left tackle, I think he would be just fine, but the Giants are going to try him at right tackle. Andrew Thomas at left. I think he's going to be dominant there. I think it's probably going to be one of those like Rayshon Slater, Tristan Wirf situations where Evan Neal comes in and 
He's an immediate star. He improves that offensive line tremendously. He helps Daniel Jones. He helps that offense be a lot more functional than it was last year or that it's been in the last few years. Uh, I think he's really, um, he's a really talented guy and um, he's in a position with the Giants where he'll start right away and he'll be in the best position for him. So that's who I'm going to go with. Now on the other side of the equation, we're going to say who, which player is least likely to succeed with their new team uh, because why not have a little pessimism in here? So Mike, who do you have as your least likely to succeed player out of this draft class? So I'm going to get ahead of the comments real quick and say, we're not going to cheat here and just go, Oh, well, uh, let's see. Well, with the last pick of the draft, you know, this guy's not going to make the team. So just, we're going to get that out there. I have two guys on the same team, and this is more about the team than it is about the player. If you go to Washington, man, I'm sorry. Like, how many teams in American sports are run more poorly than the Washington Commanders? Like, I'm looking at Jahan Dotson, their first-round receiver. I'm looking at Sam Howell. Like, I'm sorry, dude, that's a rough place to go. They just signed Carson Wentz, which, or no, I'm sorry. They traded for Carson Wentz, which tells me they don't know what they're thinking about with quarterbacks. It tells me that they don't have a reliable guy to throw to Jahan Dotson. They don't have a good leader to put in front of Sam Howell because in in his past two teams, that's been one of the main problems. Carson Wentz's leadership. I'm just using this as like a way to crap on Carson Wentz again. Shocker. Time on this podcast. But like that affects his uh, first round receiver and the quarterback that's supposed to learn from him. Like, I don't like this for either of those. Like, he's he's bad for both of them. I agree with Sam Howell. I think Jahan Dodson. Like, I mean, Terry McLaurin has been good there. I think Dodson could potentially do well there as well. But I'm actually going to stick with Washington for one of my players that you didn't mention. <laughs> and that's Fedarian Mathis, defensive tackle at Alabama. I mean, you look at that defensive line, I'm just kind of trying to figure out who does he play instead of. I mean, the the commander's defensive line is the best part about their team. I just don't see how this guy is going to come in and play very much, um, especially because they already have like a couple of other Alabama defensive linemen on there. I, I just don't really see, number one, the value of using your second round pick on a guy who's probably not going to play right away. But also like, I just, it just doesn't make much sense. I mean, you can't succeed if you're not playing. So that's, that's one guy that, that I had. And then the other one, uh, going back to the giants, I was just complimenting Evan Neal and that selection. I think that was a very good selection, but then with the next pick after Evan Neal, in the second round, they picked Wandale Robinson out of Kentucky. He's a receiver. Um, he's a slot receiver. He's five foot eight. He's not going to play on the outside. He's going to play exclusively in the slot. The Giants already have Sterling Shepard. They just drafted Kadarius Tony last year. Both of those guys primarily operate out of the slot. So you're telling me that are they just going to like release Sterling Shepard and? give up on Kadarius Tony after one year. Like, why are you using your second round pick on this guy who again was not 
the best receiver available, even if they wanted to take a receiver. I just It just didn't really make that much sense to me. And I just don't know if he's going to really see the field, maybe on special teams, but overall, I just it just doesn't really make that much sense. So Mathis and, um, and Robinson, I think these two guys are going to struggle to find playing time right away. And as a second rounder, for the most part, you should expect to be starting or at least have a rotational role immediately. And I just don't see Robinson or, or Mathis getting that uh, in, in year one. I also considered one tail Robinson. <laughs> so big agreement there. Now, one of the more interesting things to look at in the draft is, you know, the, the surprise players. I can't believe he lasted this long, or I can't believe this team just got him already. So let's do the risers first. Dave, let me tell you mine. Dave, you mentioned Matt Ariza earlier, and he went in the sixth round. So let's just say I was shocked. You know, I was talking about how well the Ravens did earlier. But I was shocked when they drafted Jordan Stout, a punter, in the fourth round. I'm just going to go ahead and put that one out there. It's not the, the flashiest pick for the biggest riser, but this is the one that shocked me the most. I was like, fourth round? It's kind of early for a punter. Okay. Why not? Especially because I I thought Matt Ariza was the best punter. But, so shocking first that they drafted a punter in the fourth round and shocking even more that it wasn't Matt Ariza. That's my biggest riser here. Okay. Um, I kind of went a different approach with my pick. I went with the two walkers out of Georgia with mine. Trayvon Walker rising to number one overall. If you would, like before the season started, like there, he would not have even been close to being in the conversation. I feel like even before the college football playoff, he wasn't even close to being in the conversation. Then all of a sudden, he he breaks out uh, in the playoff. He he tests unbelievably well at the combine, and he ends up being drafted number one overall over the Heisman runner-up in Aiden Hutchinson. That just kind of that was a meteoric rise to me whether that's from the beginning of the season or even from the end of the regular season through the draft process all the way up to number one overall. That was was just kind of crazy to me. And then Quay Walker as well, um, going to the Green Bay Packers in the first round. I didn't necessarily think that he was a first-round talent, and I thought that there were other players they could have drafted instead. So I think the the, the two Walkers out of Georgia were uh, my biggest risers. Now, as far as biggest followers go, sticking with the Georgia defense, I think I have to talk about Nicobe Dean. Uh, this is a guy who was, you know, either late first round, early second round guy. Not not the biggest, not the fastest, but a guy who was productive, who was a leader, and who was the captain of one of the best college defensive units of all time. Uh, a guy who flashed on tape and who just, you know, we it came out that there was an, an injury that, uh, you know, that wasn't really publicized, but that teams found on, and so they flagged his medical reports. But Nicobe Dean ended up lasting all the way until the third round. And so many different linebackers went ahead of him. Uh, he was a guy who we were like, all right, the Falcons, like, just draft him. Like, where, what are you waiting for? And they never did. But I just found that to be shocking as a guy who we really expected to be late first round, early second round at the latest, going all the way to like mid third. It's just, 
that was definitely surprising. And um, the Eagles ended up stopping his fall, but that, and uh, I don't know if you're going to say Malik Willis as yours, but I think that one is, was also shocking. A guy who was potentially, um, you know, at least in our mock draft, I put him at number six to the Panthers. <laughs> How far, do, I mean, he also fell to the third round. It was just kind of crazy to see. And I think those two guys for, for me really stood out. My two were Nicobe Dean and Malik Willis. I mean, you said you picked him at six in our mock. There were mock drafts out there that had him at two. But, you know, we've talked about Malik Willis plenty in this episode. So just one other guy that surprised me. I didn't think Perrion Winfrey was going to fall all the way to 108 uh, to Cleveland. Um, defensive tackle out of Oklahoma. I I was expecting him more towards, like, end of the second, top of the third. Um, instead, he slides to the mid fourth that one shocked me a bit (laughs) and what was funny is like as we were watching the draft like we could have made a drinking game out of how many times they predicted him to be that next pick kind of like what we were doing with nicobe dean to be honest but they were like okay this is it this is the time nope still nope okay um so he fell a bit but the biggest two to me are dean and willis so we'll go there and now for our last superlative you already know we like fantasy sports on the Mike and Dave podcast. And we did this last year, you know, looking at what player is going to have immediate fantasy value. So of course we're going to do that again. Dave, if you're drafting a rookie in our fantasy draft in the next few months, what rookie are you expecting to have the most fantasy impact right away? All right. So for me, this was between three first round receivers um, I don't think any of the running backs are going to come in and be the unquestioned uh, bell cow, or as Mike likes to call it, bell horse running back. Um, so I didn't, I didn't use any of those. I mean, Brees Hall to me is probably the best option, but even then they've got other running backs there and the Jets offense isn't that great anyway. So for me, it's between Drake London, Chris Olave and Traylon Burks. I think Drake London is, of course, going to be the number one or at least 1B option in that offense, along with Kyle Pitts. Chris Olave is going to be him and Michael Thomas, if Michael Thomas actually ever plays again for the Saints. And then Traylon Burks is going to fulfill that A.J. Brown role for them. And they really don't have too much talent at receiver outside of that. So I think those three, I mean, when it comes to fantasy, opportunity reigns supreme. And these three are going to have a lot of targets. They're going to be involved uh, pretty soon, uh, you know, starting week one. If I had to pick one, man, I like them all. I think I think Drake London is a little risky because we don't exactly know what we're going to get from Mariota or from Ritter. Burks is a little risky too. Tannehill has not had a great season. We know they like to run the ball. So I'm going to go with Chris Olave. The Saints, you know Jameis Winston's going to sling it. Uh, whether that's for good or bad, we will we will wait and see. But we know he's going to get opportunities. He's a smooth route runner. He can get open, um, especially in a, a PPR league. I think he's going to catch a lot of balls for them uh, in the middle of the field. And maybe he'll be uh, a threat in the red zone too. You never know. But I'm going to go with him. But it's it's between those three guys. I would be interested in drafting any of those three. Interestingly enough, I also was torn between three first-round wide receivers. But I'm going to 
pick one that you didn't name, and that's Garrett Wilson. I mean, you're right. Brees Hall is not going to immediately be the bell horse running back in New York. Zach Wilson is you know, looks for someone besides Elijah Moore to throw the football to. And it's going to be that 10th overall pick, Garrett Wilson, the playmaker on offense, um, deep play capability, um, but also a player that doesn't need to run deep routes to catch the ball. Uh, look for a lot of like slants, uh, a lot of drag routes that he will then turn into uh, big gains. Um, I just like the fit there in terms of like, here's a player that we can, not that they're exactly the same player, but sort of like Jalen Waddle in Miami, where it's like, we have this electric player, let's just give him the ball how we can and just let him operate, whether that's sending him deep or just hit, feeding him short and letting him do something with it. Yeah, I, I considered him, but then I remembered that Zach Wilson is the quarterback. But yeah, I think Garrett Wilson is a good player. I mean, I consider Jamison Williams too. It's just we don't know exactly when he's going to come back. So those are our 10 Superlatives for the 2022 NFL Draft. Five for the teams, five for the players. And of course, we'd love to hear your superlatives for those as well, or who you think is most likely to succeed, who drafted the best, so on and so forth. You can let us know on our social media at Mike and Dave Pod, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'd love to hear your opinions and give some back and forth there, give some feedback, answer any questions you have about how your team drafted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let us know your thoughts and questions there. When we come back, we're going to, of course, as always, get into the hot seat and the fun fact. So don't go anywhere. All right, now it's time to get into the hot seat for this episode. Mike, who do we have this week? So if you watched game one of the Warriors and Grizzlies series, then you probably saw, or even if you didn't, you've probably seen the highlight of this, Draymond Green getting ejected for his foul. They were they assessed a flagrant two foul for his foul against Brandon Clark. Uh, Clark was in the air, and Draymond basically pulled him down in the air by his jersey. Now, sure, like at the end of the play, it looks like he's trying to catch him, like stop him from having a worse fall. But the fact remains, he did not accidentally grab him by the jersey. It's a, a very dangerous play because at that point, Brandon Clark can't control like any part of like how he lands or where he lands or whatever. And Draymond Green forced him down and all this. And he said it was a, uh, quote, very interesting ejection. Um, and there's been some back and forth on this, like around the NBA, like he and Charles Barkley have gotten into it. Um, basically, Draymond doesn't think he should have been ejected. You know, go figure. Now, Steph Curry has added to it and said that it's bad for the game of basketball for Draymond to be ejected like that. And I assume that what he's getting at is one of two things. One, that in the playoffs, you should have like all the best players like available to play and you shouldn't like yank stars from the game. Or two, He's saying that 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 play doesn't warrant a flagrant two. Those are my two possible interpretations for what Steph's saying, both of which I disagree with. Uh, First of all, I think that if they had seen that 
and not called a flagrant two, much less gone back on it and said, never mind, it's not a flagrant two. That sets a dangerous precedent for other players to then grab other other players by the jersey, which is a very dangerous play. Uh, Brandon Clark could have gotten hurt. He could have fallen and broken his wrist. Uh, that's bad for basketball. To it's one thing to like have these chippy fouls that get called too aggressively, or like we've talked about like the bad technical foul calls. But this definitely needs to be enforced for player safety. Uh, say what you want about the '80s, but like this stuff can't be happening. And if it's the other, um, what you just give Draymond Green a pass because he has a reputation as like a good player, and so he gets to get away with more violent activities. Um, no, what's bad for the, for the game of basketball is making is first of all, star treatment. And second of all, dangerous plays. And the last thing I want to say about this is like, yeah, this is who Draymond Green is, but can you imagine for one second if, I don't know, uh, if Brandon Clark had pulled Steph Curry down by the Jersey in midair? Draymond Green would have wanted to fight him and then whined if Brandon Clark wasn't immediately ejected. Like, this is just, like, your classic, like, whatever team is in the, like, disadvantaged spot complains about it. But, like, were they in the advantageous spot, they'd be, like, just fine. Like what you talked about with the play-in, like, way back when. Like, whatever teams are, like, having their playoff seating worsened by the existence of the play in tournament hate it on that year and whatever team needs it to get in loves it that year it's just hypocritical yeah i i definitely uh can see where you're coming from i think a lot of people are on the hot seat i mean i think draymond green of course is steph is the the refs that called it a flagrant foul too are on the hot seat brandon clark is on the hot seat for his response and being like draymond gonna draymond or whatever um that's paraphrased but you know, like this, just this whole situation has been very, like people have very strong opinions about it. So it, it has been an interesting one to kind of follow along and, and see um, kind of the fallout of it. But what I will say is the Warriors still won game one. So people saying that, you know, it out, you know, affected the outcome of the game. Maybe it did, but at the end of the day, the Warriors still won the game. So, you know, it is what it is now. I don't know what this is about to be about, but Dave was telling me earlier that he's got something to say. Maybe this is a that's disrespectful. Maybe it's a that's respectful. I don't know, but we're about to find out together. All right, so it's going to be a very short, a very brief uh, segment of that's respectful not to steal Mike's segment, but I had to, I had to, uh, to comment on this when I saw it. So the Mets were playing the Braves the other day and, uh, Mets pitcher, Chris Bassett threw a pitch that by all accounts was definitely a strike. Should have been strike three on wait for it. Dansby Swanson, <laughs> but ended up not being a strike. Uh, because the umpire decided to call it a ball. Chris Bassett had already like walked off the mound, like expecting to be strike three inning over. Everybody else was like getting ready to like, you know, change, change players, all this stuff. And then they had to like, be like, wait, what? 
he didn't call that a strike. And then everybody had had to kind of like walk back and like Bassett had this look on his face like, wait, are you serious? He was like shocked, right? So long story short, Chris Bassett ends up getting out of the inning unscathed. No runs were scored because of it, whatever. So as he's walking off of the mound, the umpire ends up, I think his name is Gary Fairchild. Um, the umpire like gets Bassett's attention and does the classic, my bad, like, you know, motion on his chest. And Bassett's like, like nods, like we're cool. Not so like that in itself is respectful because I feel like umpires and referees never own up to making a mistake. First of all, it takes the freaking NBA two minute review thing to actually like where we see how many calls the the referees actually missed, et cetera, et cetera. Especially in baseball where balls and strikes and the potential robot umpire coming into play and everything is such a big, like hot topic. It was really cool to see the umpire being like, yo, I missed that one. And like going like during the middle of the game between innings and was just like, you know, that's my bad. That was really obviously very respectful. And then um, a- after the game was over during the press conferences, obviously people like took notice of this. It uh, started making the rounds on social media. And Chris Bassett was literally like, these guys have a really hard job. Um, and I apologize to him for like, showing him up with my reaction to the ball not being called a strike. Um, I told him that, you know, I think he does a great job and I think that they have a really hard, you know, they're put in a really tough position and people don't give them enough credit for the work that they do. And I was just like, dang, when have you ever seen a more like respectful exchange between a player and an umpire referee in any sport? I can't think of one. And I just thought that it was really good for the game, for just that relationship across sports in general, that these two guys were able to be like, you know what, I made a mistake, and the other guy to accept that and be like, you know, I shouldn't have reacted the way that I did. I respect, you know, the work that you do, and like move on from the situation. I just thought that it was really cool from both sides, so I wanted to give that a shout out. I think that's definitely worth a shout out, um, especially because like, you know, athletes our role models and you got uh like kids and i mean forget kids as well but like just people that uh that watch these guys that like look up to them and whether consciously or subconsciously like model parts of their behavior their attitude after some of these players and like i'm sure we can all think of people in our lives that don't do that that kind of thing that don't own up to their mistakes or like take the respectful or take relatively respectful approaches that like maybe this could influence some sort of like social growth in any circle and like that'd be nice as opposed to like kids are playing pickup basketball and people want to like shoot threes and then turn around and like you know look away because Steph did it and so while you're on while there's that end of the spectrum it's nice to see like guys that can have positive impacts as well. So I respect that as well. Just so much respect <laughs> from yeah. everywhere on this situation. <laughs> it's just nice. But to move on from this respect and this niceness, this kindness that I'm just not used to here, what do you got for us for the fun fact this week, Dave? If you thought to yourself, 
how many hairs are on my head constantly that I'm going to tell you. Yeah. I'm going to tell you. Now, it's not the actual number of of hairs that are on your head that is the the most fun part of this fun fact. It's the difference between hair color. So, most redheads have about 90,000 hairs on their head. Most blondes have about 140,000. So 50,000 more hairs on their head than redheads do. And brunettes are in between those two figures. First of all, that's a lot of hair. Second of all, I just couldn't believe that if you like, if take like some red haired girl and a blonde girl and put them next to each other, somehow the blonde girl has 50,000 more hairs on her head i can't can't do the math but like ninety thousand compared to 140,000. i don't know what percentage more that is but it's a significant percentage more you just i just wouldn't expect that to be the case and you know redheads are kind of dying out which is sad but (laughs) uh that's beside the point but i just thought it was interesting and then brunettes are just kind of in the middle uh depending on on the person so so that means a redhead has about 65% of the hair of a blonde. See, this is this is one of the low-key ways that Mike contributes to this podcast is he's able to do these percentages and like mental math equations and things that I am not that I'm unable to do. So shout out to Mike for that. Uh continue. <laughs> it's like usually I just like sit here and laugh. yeah every now and then i'll just be like oh yeah let me do some math for you help out that way whatever but yeah i would have guessed the opposite actually just because like my thought process would have been like oh blondes probably have the least because like you know maybe it's the hair as like a whole looks lighter because there's less there to like produce a thick cohesive coloring and therefore like I would expect like brunette to be like the the most, but huh? That that is interesting though. I the only thing I know about hair, like in this realm at all, is like every guy has like a tint at some like varying degree of red or like ginger or whatever in his beard. It's just like at what like concentrated level is it? Uh, huh. I know that because my friend's wife is a hairstylist and and she was like like that one of the first times I met her that was like her fun fact she's like did you know you have red in your beard I'm like I I guess <laughs> good to meet you <laughs> um <laughs> that, that that is funny though I will say um I mean my mom has red hair but if the sun shines like a certain angle on my beard which for those of y'all who don't know i have a full beard and i will until the day i die um i'm a, I'm a beard guy um yeah you can actually see a lot of the red hairs uh like pop like in the sunlight which i always thought was a one of my better features there aren't too many to choose from that are that are great but that 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 is one that that i that i do like so that's interesting that because i thought i was kind of special I was like, ooh, nope. look, I have some red in my beard, but literally, apparently, every guy has it who, who has a beard, so never mind. 
let, let me just uh let me just you know pick up the the broken pieces of of my of my pride and my appearance and uh move on welcome to my world dog it's just <laughs> <laughs> you live your life thinking you're special until someone just hits you with the cold hard slap of reality no you're not <laughs> Right, where someone introduces himself by giving you a fun fact that's really not fun at all. I, I very much oversimplified <laughs> that um that meeting, but <laughs> to to Mike's random friend's wife, who may or may not be listening to this, you know who you are. We didn't mean any anything <laughs> by it. It's fine. Um, I also i I enjoy the fact that you um, I kind of like took over your segment of that's respectful. And then you had your own fun fact to add to my fun fact for this segment. So we kind of like, we're like working on on each other's things. So I, I appreciate that. Hey man, it doesn't happen often. So let's cherish it while we can. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, that's going to wrap up this episode. Um, this very special episode marking the one year anniversary, more or less of this podcast, um, as we kind of mentioned in the intro, we're very excited to continue to uh, be recording these podcasts for y'all. Um, and yeah, looking forward to the next episode, as as Mike said. And um, speaking of the next episode, it's going to be two weeks from Friday. And to be honest, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about. So it's going to be as much of a surprise to, to us as it is to you, but make sure to stick around and um, listen to it by subscribing on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on currently. We'd appreciate that. And while you're there, why not give us a five-star review uh, slash rating? We would appreciate it. If you're not already following us on social, what are you doing? Follow us on social at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mike and Dave Pod. You can interact with us there. We literally tell you to do that every time. Like, just follow directions. Come on. And tell your friends to follow those same directions. We're trying to make our ratio look nicer and nicer as as the weeks pass. You know? Okay, stop. <laughs> just, just stop right there. Tell me to stop. <laughs> oh, so you did stop. Okay, okay, cool. So, reach out to us on that. And, you know, Dave said we don't really know at this exact moment what we're going to talk about on the next episode. So maybe this is an opportunity for you guys to reach out to us. What do you want us to talk about? Like, you know, we can we can adjust accordingly. We can take your your suggestions into consideration. You know, no guarantees here. But now, if you're going to be like rank your top five Ohio State and Florida players of all time, that ain't going to cut it. I have none. No, veto. <laughs> They're all going to be like players that like dropped important passes, missed important blocks, got critical face mask penalties. <laughs> but either way, we're looking forward to hearing from you, whether it's good or bad. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the steak dinner that Dave is going to buy me for our one year anniversary of this podcast. <laughs> this is the first I'm hearing of this, but uh, 
I mean, I have my leftovers from my birthday dinner. Uh, it was steak, so like I could send that to you, maybe. Does that count? It's a ribeye. It's pretty good. Oh. <laughs> leftover scraps. It's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me, man. Hey, it is for our one year anniversary, so shoot. What can I say? I take care of my own. Y'all heard it here first. Find you a guy that treats you like Dave treats me. Just ruthlessly makes fun of you at every stop and then gives you leftover steak scraps. What a time to be alive. I wouldn't say I'm ruthless. <laughs> I'm not going to deny making like t- like making fun of you a lot, but don't, don't use that that adjective. <laughs> That makes me sound like I'm a bad person, which I'm not. <laughs> hey, all I'm going to say is whenever I say that kind of stuff, you laugh. So, I mean, I, I guess it's funny. It's a know. coping mechanism. Okay, now, now we're just kind of <laughs> getting too deep. I, I feel like we should just go ahead and just call it here. So, uh, Mike, why don't you do the thing where you do the outro? Now that we've gotten all that out of our systems, we'll be starting the planning process for the next episode. Hopefully with some of you guys involved via social media. I think that's about going to do it for this show. So, as always, this has been Mike. And this has been Dave, and you've been listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. Alexander on the beat.